got a Bible, we're in Judges chapter 6. And like almost every uh, time we're uh, in a section, this is the shortest one we've got in, in our study together in these seven weeks is one chapter. So I was thanking the Lord on Thursday, only had one chapter to deal with. Chapter 6 of Judges. So far in our study, let me just remind you, if you haven't been with us, the rhythm uh, of, of Israel and God and sin that we've seen so far in these first five chapters, um, Israel gets caught doing evil. And their evil is they've turned away from God and they've braced foreign and false gods, Baal and Asherah, and they have uh, done whatever they wanted to do. And God gave them what they wanted, and that was their own freedom, and they were miserable because of it. Their, their decisions ruined their life, and they cried out to God, and God delivered them, sent a judge. And the text has this way of responding to that experience. The land had rest for, and it says 40 years, 80 years, 20 years, whatever. <clears throat> there's a little change in, in chapter 6 for us. Even though there's a story about Israel, and clearly we'll see the rhythm again here in this chapter. T- to me, chapter 6, even chapter 7 and 8, is, is predominantly more about the judge this time. Unlike all these other uh, experiences we've seen, Gideon, the judge in this case, is kind of a great example, a great uh, demonstration of of human tendency. So we're going to see a lot of behind the scenes on on Gideon. In fact, I think it's a a fairly big deal. Many writers suggest that Gideon is probably the foremost of the judges mentioned in in the book of Judges. And uh, he's talked about more in this book. There's more time spent on him than any other judge, for for one. He is... uh, the Lord is more active, it seems to be, in Gideon's life because even, even the text tells us that an angel speaks to, to Gideon. It doesn't happen to any other judge that we see. The prophet Isaiah, many, many years later, talks about Gideon and his victories and the significance of what he did and what God did with him. So it kind of stands out as an example. And ultimately, in, in, in Samuel, his list of deliverers in 1 Samuel, uh, he is mentioned. Gideon is mentioned as, as one of the foremost of those deliverers. A lot of writers would look at Gideon and say, there's a great like a parallel to Moses and, and how God calls Gideon and, and, and struggles that Gideon has to be the kind of leader that God calls him to. So there's some examples there. And eventually we'll find in, in the narrative, not today, but next week, we'll see that the people want Gideon to be their king. And he turns that down, by the way, but ultimately he lives like a king. It doesn't matter what they ask from him. He, he kind of still has the demeanor of, a, of someone that feels like he's too important to the story. And so we'll see that whole experience. And even though today is predominantly good things that God does with him, next week we're going to find out how prone to failure he is, that eventually Gideon, Gideon falls into sin and leads God's people to it as well. And I think it's a reminder, and, and, and you've been here, I think, for the last couple of weeks, you're going to hear this over and over again, and don't get sick of it. Every time we run into a judge, we're going to make one predominant statement. Every time we see a, a, a judge, it points to a need for a judge that will not disappoint us, and a judge who will not die. The ultimate judge is Jesus. So we have all these human examples of savior, redeemer, rescuer, right? The fighter against those who, and things that oppress us. And, and every time we read of a human involved in the story, there's some kind of weakness, some kind of disappointment, some kind of death that just cycles them back into sin and back into crying out for help. And, but we know if you're a gospel citizen, if you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's one person that we celebrate. You sang about it. It is Jesus. And Jesus is the judge, the ultimate judge, redeemer, rescuer that doesn't ever disappoint us. He's never going to die again. And we are redeemed through him. And so it's his perfect life for us that, that gives the church hope. Would you agree? That's, that's where we're going. So 
Hopefully you'll uh, be prepared for that. So let's get back into the, the text. If you were here last week, remember we saw God rescued Israel from the Canaanites and he used Deborah, the only woman judge, who was actually a, a prophetess and a, and a judge. She was not a warrior, so God brought Barak alongside her and used this housewife named Jael to bring about his punishment on, on the Canaanites. <clears throat> And the text tells us that it all went as planned, as God planned, and God rescued them, same as he always did before. And in verse 31 of chapter 5, it says this thing that it always says after God delivers his people. And the land had rest for 40 years. Rest. And, and, and I've made this point last week, but I'm going to make it over and over again because I think there's something really poignant in it. This rest was rest from the, the consequence of their actions, the oppression of all these other, other enemies and forces, their own self-made misery. It, this rest was peace. Like we've got a season where it's good and it's right. 40 years in, the, in this case. Um, and, and I made it clear to you last time, that's exactly what Jesus does for his people. But, but let me kind of come at it from a different angle. Do you wonder how absurd it is for Israel to participate in their stress? Like, is it odd to you at all for them to choose to leave the rest of God? Because that's what happens. God rescues, he redeems, they have rest, and they make a decision to go away from that rest, and it all comes apart again. I know it's easy to pick on Israel. Here we are thousands of years later looking back and going, what a bunch of fools they are. But let's be fair. How quick are we to choose sin? I mean, some of you in here, and, and myself included at times, we choose sin. And what does sin do to us? Is there a better way to describe it than, man, it's just not fun. And there's no rest. And I can't sleep. And it feels like the weight of countries on my shoulders. I don't like it. Isn't that where we go when we make choices to sin and rebel against God? Isn't that true? We choose our unrest. And yet God has to bring peace to us again. Well, here we go in the cycle again. Chapter 6, verse 1. They had rest for 40 years, but this is how it turns out. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for, for seven years. Just to remind you again, chapter 2 was really clear about what evil was from God's vantage point about his people. They would turn from him and turn to other gods. They would worship a false god. And the result is always the same. Sin is a bad choice because now they suffer. Isn't that what it says here in, in verse 1? The Moabites now, or the, the Midianites now come and God gave them. Here is, you want this? You want rebellion? You want to go away from me? Well, then here's your options. And he gives them over to the Midianites. But in this particular story, un unlike the Moabites that we've seen in the past or the Canaanites in the last story, um, the Midianites aren't there to conquer Israel. They don't, they don't want to take over the people. All they want to do is plunder everything. They, they show up periodically. My guess is every year when the land is producing all its best, and they come in like locusts, and they take everything. They destroy all the plants and all the crops. They take the animals, and they leave them with nothing. So Israel has worked all this time to provide for their sustenance, and in a second, hordes of people and camels, as many as locusts in number, come and just pillage the land, and there's nothing left. And so what is Israel's response, at least from the story, is they run and hide. 
In fact, they move out of town when the Midianites show up and they go into the hills and they hide in caves and little secret places and they try to get away from the oppressors because they're certain that they'll die if they try to protect what's theirs. And so they're in this rhythm. The Midianites would come to just ravage everything and they would go hide and let them have it. Seven years, the text tells us here. And it's horrible for them. Verse 6 says it this way. Verse 6, that Israel was brought very low. That, that thought is really one word in the original language. It was impoverished. Israel was brought impoverished. It, it has two ideas to it. One, not only economic, obviously they were losing everything, but emotional. These people were worn out, had nothing, and were depressed about it. That's the condition that now this story finds them in. So what does Israel do about it? What do they always do about it when their self-perpetuated decisions equal misery? What do they do? They always cry out. It's been seven years, God, and they start to whine. But unlike all these other stories we've seen so far, there's something different this time in how God responds. Because before he sends a deliverer, because that's what he's done in the past, right? He sends a sermon. So weird in this rhythm with Israel. He sends a preacher. Look at verses 8 through 10. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Let me stop for a second. That's what the prophet is saying to the people. Remember what I told you, God says. Remember what God promised to you. Remember he would go before you, and you're not getting it. So stop for a second. If God's going to send a preacher in the middle of this kind of cry, do you think you understand the point of a sermon? A lot of, now I'm going to differentiate between preaching and teaching, but, but love teachers. But God confronts in preaching. God does a couple of things that I think happen uniquely by the Spirit's power in preaching. He brings about a conviction for an experience of repentance. That's his intention. He brings a prophet here to Israel to say, listen, you've screwed it up. You did exactly opposite. Turn from your sin. That was the point of of preaching. And and I just got to make this point. God's greatest, most gracious work in a person's life isn't when he answers your prayer or heals your sickness or provides an income or sorts out some kind of problem, specifically. God's greatest work in a Christian's life is when his spirit speaks to our heart and brings conviction, that brings repentance. Because watch, when your heart is changed and when there's repentance in it, there's something about our perspective that changes. There's something about our response that changes, even if the circumstances don't ever change. That's what preaching does. That's what God does when his spirit shows up and says, this is what I've said, and it applies to to you. That's preaching here. It's God's word through his amazing love and grace that woos all the rebellious to see and Savior Jesus. Because ultimately, whenever we go anywhere away from God, we're choosing something other than Christ. And it's God's work in us that has us see that and say, I want him. I, I made a mistake. I have made a false conclusion that what I needed was that or this. And it is his graciousness, his preaching that brings it about. So let me ask you a question. Are you listening? No, really, really listening. 
How many times have you ignored what God clearly said because you were so focused on what you wanted God to do? God's speaking. And we've got our lists. It's like Israel. We're, we're sitting in the caves and I'm upset. Things aren't going my way and I'm, I'm certain I know what the problem is. Are you listening? Because many times God's saying something to you and you're worried about the list. In Israel's case, as always, God in his graciousness, God in his faithfulness to his people and to his promise sends a deliverer. His name is Gideon. Look what God says about his role. Verse 11 and 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's an oak tree, by Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, now that's how God saw the situation. Now let's see how Gideon sees it in verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of, of Midian. And it seems obvious to me, just by reading the text, that Gideon is at least a little bit frustrated at this point, if not angry. Here is this, this angel we know that says to Gideon, you're, you're the man, mighty man of valor. God's going to rescue you. And, and Gideon says, baloney. Not happening. And he says all these, these things about his experience. We're suffering and we're hiding in caves. And why do you think I'm hiding in a wine press with a little wheat I have left trying to thresh it out to survive? Why do you think we've been dealing with this for seven years and you have the audacity to call me mighty man of valor? And, and the text tells us in, in verse 14 that this angel turned and stared at Gideon. I, I call this the, the stare of authority. Every parent knows this stare. You don't have to say anything. They, they do something, you just give them the stink eye, right? And they know there's wrath about to come down on their head, right? And so this, this angel looks at Gideon and just stares at him, and he says to him, go in your might, in this might of yours, and save Israel. Well, I think the, I think the stare had an impact because I think his tune changed a little bit. The tone of his angst changed because in 15, he starts throwing down excuses. That's what he says. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm least of my father's household. There's no way. You picked the wrong guy. You got the wrong address. It's not me. I have a thousand reasons why I can't be what you've said. Now, there's so many things in this exchange that Gideon has with the angel, but I think there's one thing that presents a whole bunch of problems in Gideon's perspective. One would be that he's ignorant of Israel's real problem. He, like all of Israel, thinks the problem is the oppressors. He thinks that if we just get rid of the Midianites, then we're good. God thinks the problem is idolatry. God's coming to deal with the wayward heart of his people, like he always does, to add something to what he's promised. And so Gideon is absolutely convinced there is the problem, and you, you have to deal with it. It's theirs. It also shows in Gideon's mind an ignorance of God's recent activity because the only examples he can show up would be Exodus. He goes back hundreds of years and say, I've heard tell that God's done great things in the past. Let's talk Moses. And, and we have just, you know, 40, 80 years earlier that God redeemed and rescued and gave them rest. He should know those stories. He should know those stories, but he's ignorant of that. He's ignorant of God because he makes an accusation that God has forsaken them. Like if God could, 
Like, here's what you know of God, Gideon, that he changes his mind, that he doesn't keep his promises. That's what Gideon thought. He's totally clueless about God at this point. But the Lord, in his kindness, says to to Gideon, no, listen, I'm going to be with you. And the victory that you're going to have over the Midianites will be so easy, it'll be like one guy doing it. It'll be no big deal. That's kind of how it's paraphrased there. And so Gideon does what you and I would do. Verse 17, he just simply says, okay, okay, but show me a sign. Prove to me that this thing is real. And there's a little funny gap there where Gideon goes off to make a meal. I think it's just a Hebraic way of honoring a guest that would think it was traditional. But I think it was another part where Gideon was saying, I'm going to give you time to figure out what sign you're going to show me to give me confidence that God is right in his assessments of me as the deliverer. Either way, Gideon goes off and he prepares a goat, makes some flat bread, brings back some broth, and he hands it to this guest. At this point, I'm certain he's convinced he's just a guy. And what turned out, what was supposed to be in Gideon's mind, a meal turns out to be an offering. And so the the angel that we know tells Gideon to put it on the rock. And he takes a staff in his hand, he touches the rock, the rock burns up. The offering, this bread and this goat, burns up with it. (laughs) And look at Gideon's response, verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, there should be a phrase right after that verse. I think it would fit in the context completely if it was written there by the narrator. This is what Gideon would say, and now I'm going to die. Because every time anyone came face to face with God, they were convinced I'm ruined. And, And it says here in the text that he's terrified. He's convinced that at this point he's talking to God because he says in verse 22, alas, oh Lord my God, you're, you're him. And he's certain that he's going to die. But verse 23 is so powerful. You should highlight this verse. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die The Lord knows that Gideon is terrified, and he speaks to Gideon. That first little phrase is actually one word in the original text. It's the most important word you could ever hear from God, ever. It's the word shalom. God looks at Gideon in his terror and his fear, and he says to him, shalom, rest, completeness, health, safety, absence of problems. If Gideon is convinced it's God doing the talking, the first words out of God's mouth were, it's okay. I've covered you. You're complete. You have rest. Shalom is a very important word, by the way. It's the same thing that God offers everyone who would come to Christ. Every person in here who knows you're a sinner, it's the word he offers you. Peace, rest, completeness. Um, I never know who comes to a service. I make a lot of assumptions. I'm familiar with many of your faces, and I make assumption that lots of you, maybe most of you, understand everything I'm talking about. Like when we get to the issue of Christ being the better judge and the one that won't disappoint us and and him being our shalom, my assumption is that just rings in your heart and makes you want to sing. It's all good. But I'm also absolutely convinced that people come here week after week, and they don't know and I say to you, peace, and I say shalom, and God gives it, and it's free, and you go, what is he talking about? Let me just compare and contrast to your own man-made mess. Your life is not restful. You can say, well, I don't know you, and I've never lived in your neighborhood. Well, I've lived with no rest. I've lived with doing things my way, 
I've lived with getting the consequences for my actions. I've lived, and tell me if you haven't experienced this, with the weight of the world called conviction on my shoulders. Have you not been there? And here's what God does, right? Peace comes only one way. It is settling the conflict that exists between you and God. Because Gideon thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to die. Because he's talking to me and he knows me and I'm weak and I can't do this. That conflict, that insecurity needs some kind of satisfaction. And guess what God does? God knows you and I can't be good enough. We can't fix it. We can't be religious enough. Church doesn't fix it. Communion doesn't fix it. We need something done for us. By God's standard for the conflict that I created between God and my, my own rebellion, my own unbelief. And here's the wonderful story of the gospel, the good news. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh, and he went and died for the conflict that you created between God and you. And he pronounces over all who would put their faith and trust in him, shalom, rest, peace, completeness. So the Lord in his faithfulness to Gideon says, well, you're not going to die, Gideon. And I love what Gideon does next in verse 24. The very first act of faith that he shares and shows is he goes off and builds an altar to the Lord and he names it God is peace. The only thing he knows about God at this point is he's shalom. Here's the rock of shalom. Here's peace. This is what I know of God, which is sort of true of all of us when we come by faith through Christ. We don't know much, do we? We don't know about all this. We don't know the stories. We don't know all the particulars of doctrine. All we know is what the blind man said in John 10. Tell me this doesn't ring true. Remember, Pharisees brought a blind man to Jesus and said, we got a really tough theological question. Who sinned, him or his family? Jesus said, neither. God's power and God's glory is going on display. And God makes, or Jesus makes mud from spittle and dirt in the ground and puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash, and suddenly he can see. But the Pharisees are concerned now. Jesus did a miracle. And he did a miracle on the Sabbath. Maybe we could, maybe we could undermine him. So they brought this blind man, former blind man, in for questioning. And they keep leaning on him and leaning on him. They bring in his parents and they lean on him and he just says, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. All I know is I was blind. Now I see. It's exactly the first cry of every human heart that comes to Christ. I don't know anything. Gideon didn't know much other than this. God is my shalom. He is my peace. And I'm just telling you, the gospel is really that simple. If you know that only rest comes from him, perfect rest, complete rest, forever, eternal rest comes through Christ, then you're on the right track. That is the gospel. So now in the story, you would think that the narrative would follow what we've seen so far over and over again, that Gideon would just get all this courage because he's now experienced the peace of God. He'd pick up a saber if he had one. He'd run off to battle and defend his people and we'd have rest. Well, that's not what happens in the scenario here. Look what happens, verses 25 through 27. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him 
But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Wow. God says, okay, Gideon, I want you to be the deliverer. You're going to be the one I use to go after the Midianites. You will be that next judge. But there's this huge thing you got to do first. You got to tear down your idols. Because you can't have me as your Lord when you have him as your God. It's got to go. You got to tear it all down. It's the reason why you're in this mess in the first place. You've worshiped false gods. You've taken and blended me, a version of me with a version of them and made up your own. Your dad is, by the way, the community leader of false worship because you got Baal in your backyard. I want you to take care of your idols. That's what I want you to do. So he does that even though in secret he's afraid and town wakes up the next morning. They find... Baal and Ashereth tore down and an altar to the Lord built up and this young bull sacrificed and they lose it and they're out for blood. Look what happens in verses 30 and 31. Then the men of the town said to Joash, now that's Gideon's father, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Ashereth beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Um, I, I don't want you to miss this. This is huge. Did you notice the immediate impact of Gideon's obedience? I mean, Gideon had a radical experience with God. Now, clearly, his heart has gone from I don't know to I have peace, okay? And that's where he's at. But his first reaction, even though it's a little bit crippled in fear, he obeys God. And look what happens. His father immediately turns. Dad, they say, many of the guys who were writing commentaries on this would suggest that Joash was kind of the worship leader for Baal. This was his idol. This was his place. What does he do? He defends his son, even says, listen, you're going to die if you touch him. And by the way, he has this wonderful conclusion about false gods. You don't have to defend real ones. If he's real, he can stand for himself. He was making a point about what he then believed. This isn't real at all. I, I think it's interesting as you go on in the narrative, even the people change because they look for blood here. They're wanting to kill Gideon, but as the text goes on, we see the rhythm begin again. The Midianites and the Amalekites show up, and they're going to pillage the land, and Gideon takes out a trumpet and blows the battle cry, and instead of running for the hills and the caves, all the people came to fight. Something changed in everybody because of Gideon's obedience. So let me ask you a question. Do you think you really understand the impact of your obedience? What do you think? Are you certain that the problem is your husband or your wife? Are you certain that if that gets fixed, everything's going to be cool? Like the issue is really over there? Are you certain? Are you certain that your obedience and your faith and your love of God and your pursuit of God wouldn't have some kind of ripple effect in those around you that you care about? As a parent, listen, I care. Nothing matters more to me than being a dad, really does. And I'm kind of exiting out of that part of my life, right? 
But I've talked to so many parents, and I know the heartbeat of a parent. I so desperately want my kids to get it. I want them to get it. I want them to get it. But have you neglected the fact that your obedience is the best way for them to get it? Like your passion for God, your love for God, your uncompromised way to life is way more important than having them understand a few things and show up on curfew. You understand? You loving him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the best way to have an impact in people's lives, right? So Gideon knows some things. He knows what God wants him to do because God made that clear. According to the text in verse 34, it says the spirit of God has clothed Gideon. So now he's got power from heaven. He looks around. He sees people motivated. They're there for battle. They used to run, but now they're here. We got, we got some success going on here, but there's still fear in Gideon's heart. Look at verses 36 and 37. Then Gideon said to God, if, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I also know that, it's you, that you will save Israel by my hand. Now, he does it twice, by the way. Have dew land on the fleece, and then after God answers him and gives him what he wants, then he says, let's reverse that just to test this whole thing and have the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And God does both of those things. And if you look at this, I think it would be reasonable to say, if... Like those, those two words, if you will, are you kidding me? God has said. God has empowered. God has shown you peace. If he will, what are you talking about, Gideon? Where, where, where does this if come from? Because we share a lot with Gideon, let me tell you where it comes from. Same place your ifs come from. Fear and insecurity. We all carry it around. We all have our versions of ifs. It's understandable, at least in this, in this particular story. And they outnumber us. They're like locusts. You can't count the camels and you can't count the people. And we've spent seven years in hiding and they devastate everything. And they're experienced warriors and we don't know what we're doing. I've never had a fight before. I mean, Gideon has a right to whine a little bit because he looks at circumstances and says, well, this can't work out. Not at all. So there's a part of me that really sympathizes with his fear. But you know what else is also understandable? And that would be if God got offended. If, if, who are you talking to, Gideon? What do you think? I've already told you what to do. I already told you that I would do. What's the problem? What's the issue? And, and so you're kind of almost recoiling, ready for God to smack him around a little bit, but he doesn't do that. Watch what he does. He answers his request twice. You want the fleece wet? There you go. You want it dry? There you go. Questions? Any, any other thoughts you have, Gideon? Whatever you need, I'm there to give it to you because I know you're afraid. And so he answers it. He responds. I love this. He responds with grace, not lectures. And I want you to know something, church. In our fear, because we have it, we see about this far in front of us, don't we? Not very far. And there's lots of reasons like circumstances or people or stories that influence how we feel about where we are in this story. And there's lots of reasons why we would say, mm, it looks like Mount Everest to me, God. I'm not certain. And I think it's okay for you to say, God, I don't know. I'm not certain. Gideon here was struggling and God knew he was struggling. So God reassures Gideon by answering his request. No condemnation, just reassurance. I'm here, man, I'm here. I'm here, I'm going to do it. I promised and I'll keep my promise. Let me ask you this question. What do you hear 
when you're afraid? Do you hear the circumstances? There's all these huge things in the way. Or do you hear the voice of God saying, listen, I got you. I got you. Do you hear your particular request or do you hear uh, Satan saying to you, he's going to forget you. You know that, right? There's no way God loves you because after all, look at what you've done. Aren't you the guy that shows up every Sunday at communion and confesses the same thing? Isn't that you? Do you think God's getting tired of you? Have you ever had this kind of onslaught of questions kind of hover in the back of your mind? Well, I don't think God is here to judge you because he poured out his perfect judgment on Jesus. And you stand as what he died to give you, as holy, righteous people. And he is encouraging you, and I think when you, when you ask, um, you should believe that that God is going to bring you everything as he sees fit for your obedience. Now, it's interesting to me, we're going to contrast this week this fearful, timid, insecure Gideon with this king that gets full of himself next week, which is another indication of how desperately sick the human heart is. But before we do, can I leave you with two thoughts, two, two things to consider, big thoughts about this narrative? I want you to hang on to these. I want you to know that God only sees you through the lens of what he accomplishes in you and nothing else. Listen, listen very carefully. God only sees you through the lens of what he accomplishes in you and nothing else. Do you understand? Do you, do you think it um, staggered Gideon at all? The first time he runs into the angel, he says to him, hey, mighty man of valor, who are you talking to? Who? Me? I'm hiding in the wine press trying to thrash a little grain of wheat. What are you, who are you talking to? Here, there's a reality in this for us. There are so many believers, legitimate converted believers who understand the shalom of God, who so prefer the statements of their failures and their weaknesses and struggles to define them over what God through Christ died to give you. That's what I think we struggle with. And this is not some kind of cavalier thing with our sin, just ignore it. This is, this is serious business. But what he says over you is so much greater than what you struggle with. Do you understand? When, when Peter writes, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're the possession of God, do you think that's more real? Or what you screwed up on last week? What's more real? Say it. What God says, right? There is some huge truth in this that has to be embraced. God was Gideon's peace, and Gideon hadn't done a thing but question him. The scriptures make it clear. We are friends of God. We are his children. We are his masterpiece. We are justified. We are forever freed from our sin without condemnation of God. We are adopted in his family. We're citizens of heaven. Do you need more? All the scriptures and the gospel say about his children is that we are loved in a perfect sense. So, don't use the excuses. Don't say I'm afraid. Don't say I struggle. Don't say here's my story and this is what I am. Fight against the narratives without Jesus because the narrative of Jesus in your life is a better word. Agreed? Okay. One last thing. And this is a rule, and it's always true. Whenever you cry out for help, be prepared for God to work on you first. 
Didn't like that, did you? People of God saw the problem this way. It's the Midianites, God. Because every time they show up, they take our crops and they take our animals and we go in the caves and we don't have anything. God, just deal with the Midianites. Well, God saw the problem as idolatry. The easiest thing we do is just admit that we're hurting, right? It's easy. I feel. The hardest thing to do is to have God expose the deeper issues in our pain. And we all have those. So... For instance, I think the problem is those people hate me. God says, no, 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 I think the problem is you don't love. God thinks, uh, or I think, the problem is I don't have, and God thinks the problem is I'm not satisfied with him. I think the problem is I can't, and he said, no, 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 the problem is you won't. I think the problem is how someone has treated me, and he says, no, the problem is you don't forgive. Our problems aren't out there. They're in here. And here's classically a human way to reproach it. We are always looking for band-aids and not the cure. A band-aid would be make them change, make it change, make it stop. The cure is having my heart change so that I can love like Christ and forgive like Christ. Right? So go ahead and cry out. Be good at it. I do it. You should do it. Tell them about your pain. Tell them about the problem. Tell them what your need is. As you see it, see it all that way. But I just want to warn you, be prepared for him to work on you before he works for you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for Christ, our Savior, who is and will always be our shalom, our peace, our completeness, and our rest. Father God, I thank you that we can glean from these stories the nature of our hearts without a Savior, that we can see your rescue. I pray we leave here totally in love with what you died to make us and the work that you're doing in us and through us. We submit to your will. We love you and pray. Amen.